Namaste to all of you. We will continue tonight with our reading and explanations from the fundamental text of Indian spirituality, which is Bhagavad Gita, and which has a great, great relevance in yoga, especially in karma yoga, but as you are going to see, not only in karma yoga, because it mentions almost every single form of yoga, integrating them all together. And analyzing Bhagavad Gita, <clears throat> we have reached to a point where the main fighting hero of this epic, Arjuna, he is at the point where he loses heart. He loses his courage because he is in a terrible dilemma. He is on a battlefield which may very well be a symbolic battlefield, but he is fighting against people that he knows. He is fighting against people which at least socially have an exalted position. He fights against people which are his relatives. Even if you interpret Bhagavad Gita as being a struggle within the soul of the human being, as some yogis do, you still have this problem that when fighting with yourself, you have to hurt a part of yourself. You have to kill a part of yourself. For example, fighting with your own ego is not a nice task because the ego is something which we identify as ourselves and to fight with our ego is to fight with ourselves. And it means you have to slap your own wrist often. You have to do things which are not necessarily pleasant. You have to refrain, you have to behave, you have to do various things. And that's why either way, either this is an external event, a real event in which we study karma yoga as applied in real action, or we study it as a metaphorical inner war, it's still a difficult thing. It, fa it feels like it's not nice. And that is why Arjuna normally, naturally, is despondent. He is depressed. He is discouraged. And he reached at the point where he meditates with loud voice that his question to Krishna implicitly, he's asking for help desperately because he is between the hammer and the anvil, and he now meditates with loud voice on the evils of war in general and on the evils of this war in particular. And his meditation is very old-fashioned. It follows the patterns of Treta Yuga or Dvapara Yuga, it follows the patterns of thinking of a society which is long since gone. That's why Arjuna and his family and the society in which he lives, they are not like the society which we know. Their rules are different. In the laws of Manu, which were governing the Brahminic society thousands of years ago, for example, the institution of castes, was extraordinarily important. Many people today, because of materialism, they consider that 
a wrong thing. Like you cannot really divide the society in castes, that a person is born in a low caste and it's like a doom. But you see that in a certain way, although the caste systems have been criticized by Buddha, by the tantric literature, by so many other spiritualists of the modern times, they did it not because it was not necessarily working at its original time. They criticized it because people were not able to stay at such a high level of consciousness. It requires a certain dharma, a certain righteousness to be able to live according to that. Because people believed in the time of Arjuna that when you are born in the caste of the warriors or when you are born in the caste of the farmers you deserve to be born in that caste it's your karma it's your dharma it's like your soul has to go into a life in which you are part of that caste because that's your test that's your uh, challenge that's your spiritual test and therefore people thought that nothing happens randomly but in the moment when you come and say, oh, I know this person and this person is an exceptional person and he has been born as a slave or as a commoner and it's not fair. Why not give to this person the chance to go up in the society? Because if you say that this person belongs to this caste, they are there. But maybe this person has a test of humility to pass. Maybe this person is an arrogant, vanitous, demonic person who did lots of acts of injustice and so on. And then this person has to be born in a low caste because the time is ripe for that person to be humiliated for a whole lifetime so that in this way that person ripens psychologically and spiritually and thus passes a very important spiritual test. When you look in this way, the castes are not absurd because it's like there is an integration we believe that the gods we believe that shambhala we believe that the gods of the lords of karma we believe that the buddhas of the past present and future or whoever is up there supervising the whole process and nothing happens randomly everybody is what he or she is because of a certain purpose that's why the system of the castes and other such social stratifications are creating order in the society. Today, people start from the other end of the rope. They simply say, what if somebody is born to be a king in the warrior class and that person is a weakling and an idiot and a demonic silly person and that person is not worth the honors what if a formidable person is born in a low caste and will have to be suppressed during all their lives? These what-ifs people didn't have in those days. People in those days believed that everything is the way it's supposed to be. Remember that this story is difficult to understand for the modern people. For example, when Paul, the Apostle of Christ, and you know that Christ was a liberal person, who said that everybody is the child of God. There is no difference between the rich and the poor. On the contrary, sometimes the poor are more apt to detach, to let go, to surrender 
and the rich young man, he said it's more difficult for this rich man to go through than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So nobody can accuse Jesus and his disciples of any form of social bias. And Jesus was a liberal and all those things. And yet his disciples and the teaching which came from him, for example, it did not require a social abolishing of slavery. At the time when Jesus lived and at the time when his apostles lived, both the Roman Empire and the whole world, they were embedded in the institution of slavery. None of you has probably actually seen anybody in the 21st century being a slave. Although de facto there might be some people who live like slaves in some third world countries, in the so-called civilized world, none of you has ever seen properly what slavery really means. And for all the modern people, it is unacceptable but for example Paul when he was asked about what should the Christians do if they are slaves or owners of slaves and you would expect that he would give a democratic vive la liberté fraternité liberté égalité French Revolution answer everybody is equal and everybody is a child of God so screw the slavery let's all be brothers Paul doesn't say that Paul says, if you are a slave, be obedient and be a good slave. And if you are a master of slaves and you are Christian, be compassionate and merciful. He doesn't say all the Christian slave masters should free their slaves. It's a totally different time. The collective mind of this planet is different. I'm not saying that that is better or worse. But as it is said in the Indian Shastras, the mind, the collective mind evolves. It goes through seasons. It goes through its own times. Humanity is not the same. The energy which is bathing this collective mind of this planet is not the same. It changes in hundreds and thousands of years slowly, like a slow tide. But So it doesn't change from now in 10 years. There's no major change except in some break moments, in some breakpoint moments. But otherwise, remember that the society used to be very different. Neither did Buddha stop the institution of slavery or any other things. Try to realize that these things were different from the spirituality. The spiritual people were looking into another place and they simply said, whatever you do, the spirituality should be there. For example, in the apocryphal gospel here, you cannot accuse the church of manipulation because these are apocryphal gospels. These are Gnostic scriptures discovered after 2000 years and they have not been touched by any censorship of the church. In the gospel of, I forgot whose, Mary Magdalene's or Peter's or somebody, in one of the Nag Hammadi library gospels, Jesus is asked by the apostles, what the heck is Mary Magdalene doing with us? Because, as it is known, the strict Jewish rule said that the occult sciences such as Kabbalah and religion are taught to men over 40, over the age of 40. That's the rule. And like, what is Mary Magdalene doing there?
Somebody just asks. Even Jesus, the liberal, has to take that question. And Jesus, you would believe that Jesus says, Oh, you are such a bunch of stupids. Women, men, what does it matter? Women and men are just the same. No, Jesus does not say that. Jesus says, this is a very special woman and I will make her be like a man. Jesus says, the rule is okay, only that this is a woman who has the soul or the mind of a man and she can think and act in very manly ways. So with her, it's not a problem. So he says it's an exception, but the rule stays. Jesus never contradicts the rule. And thus, in terms of stratification of the society and other rights, remember that we are totally blinded by this I am me, I am free, liberté, égalité, fraternité, which pollutes the modern world since 200 and something years, and spiritually it's not necessarily bringing to any good. Generally, almost all the spiritual authorities of this planet said that this, this is a fake democracy which does not take into account the laws of nature because in the nature there is no democracy between a lion and a rabbit. It, there can't be because they are not gifted equally. Trying to create a society in which the rabbit and the lion have the same rights, it's false. It's artificial. You can sustain it for 500 years and then one day it will crumble because it does not rely on the laws of nature. The laws of nature, look around the way the nature is built. That's the way God built the nature. And that is why things are much deeper here. But I just want to call your attention so I don't have to comment during the text itself why that society and the opinions of Arjuna are so old-fashioned and so different from the ours. Remember that in the modern society is very much also a manifestation of people's ego. Me, me, me. We have voted uh, United Nations chart of human rights. Yeah, but there should be a United Nations human chart, I say, of human duties. Because if you don't behave like a human being, perhaps you don't deserve to be treated like a human being. Like you have to earn rights in nature. In nature, the big fish eats the small fish. In nature, the alpha dog mates and the others are sitting and looking. Remember that a sane society is based on harmony with the universe as above so below. Zeus has some rights which the common mortal does not have. It is as simple as that. Jesus violates the laws of the Sabbath because he is special. Krishna violates many of the laws of the society in which he lives because he is special. And the list could continue. That is why, unfortunately, this modern ego is me, 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 give me my rights, everybody, it's fine. The great wise people have lived in this as well as outside of this. We had a Krishna born 4,000 years ago and we had a Ramakrishna born 150 years ago and a Sri Aurobindo born some whatever, 100 years ago 
And that's why there will be wisdom and there will be spirituality wherever. But that does not mean necessarily that we live in a sane society. And this rabbit hole is much deeper than that. And sometimes when I get carried on into conspiracy talks or others, I dig more into this. Now I want to focus on the teachings of Krishna. But Arjuna, it's important for me to say this, because when Arjuna describes as he sees the coming problem, he uses a very old-fashioned way of speaking for which, with which you might not be agreeing. So he says, in the destruction, he says, if we do this, we are going to destroy the family. It's also old-fashioned that the family is the cell of the society. It's by the family that the values are transmitted. It's your mother that teaches you the first prayer. When you are two years old and you, are, you start talking, your mom starts teaching you, repeat after me, our Father who art in heaven. It's your grandmother, your mother, or somebody like this who teaches you your first prayer, who teaches you about the divine. That's why in India they say the mother is the first guru. Up till the age of seven, the child has no other guru than the mother. And if the mother is a good guru, she makes the child a little saint, like the Tibetan tulku, lamas. And if the mother is spiritually uncentered herself, then she lets Madonna and Lady Gaga educate her child and cartoons in the television, and that's where it goes. And that is why uh, the family can be a source of decomposition. How many of you have told me, or I know the case, maybe not from talking directly with you, but through other channels, how many of you are at bitter odds with your family? And you say, oh, I don't talk to my mother. She's a terrible bitch. I don't talk to my father. He is a terrible person. Oh, I don't want to see. Like, your family is supposed to have brought you here. That happened in very long yugas ago. The family of today doesn't do that anymore. The family of today sometimes brutalizes you, sometimes persecutes you, sometimes treats you badly, sometimes abuses you sexually, sometimes blackmails you with money and other power games. Your parents would be selfish, ignorant people, needy emotionally or in many other ways. And therefore, the family is not what it used to be. In a regular family, people had some rules. The firstborn should be a spiritual person and all those things. Therefore, Arjuna is talking about an old traditional society in which it was not that people were whimsy and selfish and destructive. There, there was a sort of chain coming from the past. Your grandparents and your parents would tell you fairy tales and the fairy tales would shape your subconscious mind with great metaphysical truths and archetypes. And as soon as you'd come of the age of learning, you would be taught moral and ethical teachings. You would be taught ways of living in harmony with you and with others. And in some societies, these things exist. 
I remember we had in the school here a pupil who had a child with a Thai man, so her child was half Thai, half English, and lived for some nine years or ten years in this society. And she said, you know, there are points where I think that the simple-minded rural Thais, they have values which we all fight in yoga to find for decades. Like she said, I had my child living in this country for nine, ten years. And she said, you know how children are. Can't really educate children in all the small details of the craft of life. But she said, in nine years while seeing not only my son, but lots of other Thai children together, I have never seen two Thai children fighting for a toy or for some other things like this. It's very relevant. It's very relevant, right? I have been in this country for eight years. I have been often been in Bangkok, and most of you know what an infernal traffic there is. Have you ever seen a driver swearing, cursing, opening windows and giving fingers, horning madly, honking madly? And No. The utmost disrespectful reaction in a taxi driver, which I have seen in eight years, when somebody really did some stupid thing, was... That was all. You should come to Bucharest and see what traffic can be like, you know? Because they will get out with a lever, with a piece of iron, with a crowbar to break your legs. If you do just change lanes or something, you'll find some big, bulky gypsy who would jump out of his car and come out straight to beat you up. Societies and societies. That's why I'm saying there are societies which still preserve a little bit of the flavor of the past, and the family still does its job. Now, here in the school, people are learning the lives of the Buddha. I forgot the name, all those 1,000 lives of the Buddha. It has a specific name. It's not Panchatantra. I always think it's Panchatantra, but that's in Hinduism. No? That's what children study in school. There are textbooks in which you study, and every life of the Buddha, you study the life number 573 of the Buddha, when he was not yet enlightened. And that life, he was this, and, he was, and the morals of that life is, theft does not pay. Like, there are stories like fables, like moralizing stories, which you are teaching in school, so that children should learn spontaneous morality. We don't do that in the Western world anymore. Our schooling system is truly schizophrenic, truly alienated, truly autistic and unhealthy, and there is a synchronicity. The health condition of people decays, and at the same time the way we groom them also decays. That is why he starts from the family. The family was a good cell, and look at the modern society. It destroys the family. In the old days, the society was built in such a way that one person working could provide for the whole family. Today, if the woman tries to be at home and to be the, the nest take carer, the family doesn't have enough money. Very few men would be the capitalistic enterprisers who can make so much money that they can sponsor their wife and children and everybody and then the woman can do, and then the woman says, I don't want to be a housewife. 
Many women think that being a housewife is an offense. It's an inferiority thing. It's like, I want to go out there and make my own money. Like the whole thing is a matter of pride. But to make a family, to raise children, to call, it's not a matter of pride. So we are living in a society in which many, many of these values are being destroyed and the society itself goes in the direction in which the family is more and more destroyed. How many families did I not meet in the Western world who told me, now that we study spirituality, we would really like to have a spiritual family. But the social rules, they don't allow us. We are forced constantly, both the mother and the father, to work every day, the whole week, because we have to put bread on the table. And then who takes care of our child? We just send it to the kindergarten. We just, and then we have the expectation to have a spiritual child, a harmonious child. It's not there anymore. Because in the minds of our children are polluted in this way. How many times did I not meet in the Western world people who in the hippie times, in the 60s and the early 70s, they had been in contact with the Oriental wisdom through the yogis and through all the things which were happening, Tibetan lamas and others. And in the 90s, they had children. And all their nostalgia was only if somebody in this country could make a spiritual school. I hate to send my children to the regular schooling system because I know what they will learn there. If somebody, oh, if somebody would make a gurukulam like in the old days, a place where a wise guru could teach the children and we could have at least, I don't know, maybe we lost it or we didn't lose it, but at least our children should have the chance to learn in a spiritual way, to learn in a wise way, to learn in a harmonious way. But you see how Kali Yuga works? You can't do that. If in the Western world, in North America or in Europe, you'd make a school, and imagine that in that school you'd make a curriculum of vegetarianism. Do you realize how many institutions like the Food and Drug Administration you would have to placate for the mere thing that you want to give to some children some vegetarian diet? Because they will attack you. That you'd, You look on the internet, at least 50% of the articles written about diet, they say that vegetarianism is deeply unhealthy and you lack this and you lack that and you shouldn't do it. Those, all those people will spike you. And it's just because you are trying to make a school in which your children can eat in a vegetarian way. Big Brother doesn't want you to do that. It's difficult. It makes it extremely difficult. I remember once there was a powerful benefactor from Israel. And when he saw what I was doing and what I was teaching, and he saw some of the healing effects which we had with this yoga, Although, again, that's not the most important thing that we do, but it's still there and it's very relevant for many people. He simply said, I am having a charity. I'm sponsoring a whole hospital where they are doing, they are dealing with children that have cancer. Would you come and make a program there? And I said, sure, willingly. Like we would find somebody, maybe one of our Israeli yoga teachers or somebody, 
to go there to assist, to make a center. This guy was ready to put like $10 million into it, just like this. He wanted to add it to his charity. And then when his lawyers told him what it would take to put children on Oshava diet, like, you know, you put a child on Oshava diet and it was in the terminal stage of cancer because it was too late anyway, and the child dies three days later, and then you go in prison because it died because you put it on a Shava diet. That's the way the society works. So you can't do many of these things. So even this powerful person, he said, you know, yeah, deal with adults. We can't deal with children. We can't do this thing with children. Even at my level of money and power, it's not possible because the society is nuts about this. There were a couple of parents in Germany. There was a huge media scandal some three years ago. Their child had bone cancer. And they simply refused to go to surgery, chemotherapy and all that shit. And they wanted to treat their child alternatively. And guess what? The German government came and took their parental rights away. Because you are killing your child. The medical institution says you should do surgery. Chemotherapy. And you can't decide with your own child anymore. That's what I'm saying about. So the family values, remember, they are destroyed a lot when it comes to spirituality and to things because we choose the easy way, the path of minimal resistance. Don't fight. Don't, that's why many people say, let's make a yoga republic in a Pacific island, you know, because there at least you can do it the way you want it. So, Arjuna, thus meditating on the evils of war, he says, in the destruction of the family, the immemorial religious rights of that family perish. The Dharma, he uses the word Dharma, and he says the Dharma perishes, like there is no more righteousness because people would immediately fall out. A child, if he is not educated properly, he wouldn't want to sit up straight and meditate and do this and that. It's much more easy to listen to the entropy and to fool around, to be indisciplined, to have no structure, to have no spine. It's very easy to become a couch potato. The difficult thing is to stand up straight and not to be a couch potato. And therefore, he says, it's the family which is the basic cell of education on the destruction of spirituality, impiety, adharma, he calls it the non-dharma, the irreligiousness overcomes the whole family. By prevalence of irreligiousness, Shivananda translates it as impiety. Uh, other yogis would use simply the word adharma. So by prevalence of impiety, O Krishna, the women of the family become corrupt. That's another politically incorrect one where women were considered, either that is right or not for the modern time, to be a bit weak. Like they would say, you know, the woman would be premenstrual or it would be full moon and then somebody will give a suggestion, the snake with the apple, you know, the Bible episode, and then the woman would say, sure, why not? Like give in, cave in a little bit more easily while men would take it more stubbornly. I remind you, although that again it is politically incorrect and again in a tantric school we have surpassed that level way 
way beyond that because Tantra does not look at the problem in this way. Tantra is aware of the characteristics specific to men and women, but deals with them in another way. The traditional Vedic way was to keep the woman protected, like she is the weak gender, the weak sex, and therefore you have to protect the woman. This comes until the modern days where the chivalry, the knights, one of the things of the chivalry thing is protect the damsel in distress. No knight should ever do injustice or something to the woman. And this is the gentlemanly code. If you are a British gentleman of the 19th century, the woman is protected. She is treated like something which needs to be protected. Buddha himself, in his wisdom, when asked why he didn't allow women to be part of Dharma, he said, if I put women in Dharma, which means in Sangha, I'm sorry, in the Buddhist community, the Sangha will last 500 years less on the face of this earth. Like, women will make it weaker, because among them there will be some who, being confused at some time of the day, will tend to make compromises. The idea was that women would react more to the earth and less to heaven, while the spiritual principles, you sometimes have to follow them on pure faith. Like, the principle is a principle, and although it doesn't feel like it's right, I still am going to follow the principle and not what I feel. This is a, the more masculine attitude. Anyway, remember the tantric path has taken this issue. The problem is that the society moves and moves and moves and the world advances in Kali Yuga and many people, they are today nostalgic people in India who read the Bhagavad Gita and they say, we wish things were that way again. After all, do not forget that on this planet women got the right to vote only some 70 years ago. Until 70, 80 years ago, even in the Greek democracy, even the women never voted. Never. They were not consulted on the issues. Only men did vote in all the societies, except a few matriarchal societies from North Africa, Africa and other places. And that is why I'm saying some people would want to push the society back in the box go back to the caste system, go back to this status of the women, go back to the old-fashioned family. So many nostalgics, all the fundamentalistic Christians of America, they want to go Amish, they want to go old-fashioned, old-fashioned Christianity, old and everybody knows it's not going to be. All the modern people are rebelling against this, they are revolting. Of course, much of this rebellion is due to ego. I want to be allowed to drink, I want to be allowed to smoke dope, I want to be allowed to fuck, I want to be allowed to do whatever, don't tell me what to do. But most of this is actually our shitty part. It's, we want freedom, not because we want to do beautiful things. We want freedom because we want to exert our vices with impunity. Like I, I am me, I am free, and I don't give a damn, and I do whatever I want whenever I want. But it's not when you say people, okay, you do whatever, so what do you do? Nobody says, well, actually, I wanted to meditate 10 hours per day, and the society didn't let me. I wanted to be loving and compassionate and uh, cosmic consciousness, and nobody lets me be. 
Everybody wants to drink, to eat, to fuck, to do different things, which are part of our vice-ridden nature. So let's be sincere with ourselves. We get freedom, and this freedom we misuse it a lot, because we use it in the surface of our egos and something. However, the tantric wisdom and the wisdom of the modern masters says it will not go back. It's almost an act of miracle. That's what all the fundamentalistic people hope. The fundamentalistic Muslims, Christians, Jews, whatever, Hindus, they all hope that there will come a third world war. Nine-tenths of the humanity will die. The water and the air will be polluted with radioactivity. We will live in small enclaves and the food will be at the level of survival. And again, we are going to turn back to Arjuna and to Krishna. The society is going to go back to sclavagistic or feudal society. And their people will learn a lesson. All the proud, demonic people who say, I am me, I am free. They should be stuck with their nose in the muck. And they will bite the dust. And God will teach the pride a lesson. And finally, people will come to their senses. And they are going to become repentant they will repent for their demonic pride and they will swallow their pride and they will start being religious again what's the chance of that really happening it didn't really happen ever in the history of the earth so if we learn from the history people who learn from the history say that it didn't there is a myth that it happened at the time of noah that the people and the generation of noah the prophet were very arrogant and God drowned them. And only one righteous person was allowed to continue in that part of the world at least. And that was Noah. So then Noah's children and Noah's grandchildren and a few generations after, they were God-fearing decent people because God wiped out the bad. And that is like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it's like if you realize while this exists as myths in the Bible, nobody really, and that Atlantis sunk to the bottom of the sea because the Atlanteans became too proud and arrogant and too powerful, that may be so, but we do not have any evidence to rely on. And that's why when we look at the society as we know it, we see that things never turn back. They always go forward. That's why Tantra, and the way I personally see it, and the way I have learned it from many modern mystics and teachers that I have consulted and that I have learned from, they rather believe that the way is forward, not backward. Like there are two ways to deal with this decadence of the society. Either we push it back and we go to the medieval times, we go to Krishna and Arjuna's time and rules, to the laws of Manu, to a caste society and to a society where women are in a protected environment but controlled at the same time and all that. Or we push this forward. It's like the same thing which I always tell to you. When somebody pushes you, you have two options. Either you push them back, and that's what the fundamentalists and the conservatives try to do always, or you throw them over your shoulder. Tantra is on the shoulder technology. Tantra goes for Aikido and Judo. 
if the society rolls that way and we had the hippies breaking the chains and all that what's happening now, tantric say, push it even further. Then push it further. Like, okay, people are not in the family and all this bourgeois Christian family or Jewish or Islamic or Hindu is kind of semi-compromised. It is obsolete because nobody really believes in it. People don't marry for a lifetime to be together in illness and health, in good and in evil. As soon as it is bad, people chicken out and they go away. A woman goes with a man, the man is taken by drunkenness. He becomes a drunk. Why should the woman stay with him? 200 years ago they would, although they were getting beaten every day. Because there is a spiritual crucifixion in that way, in taking a sort of martyrdom upon yourself. But hey, crucifixion and martyrdom is very much a Christian concept. So if you don't believe in that, why take it? Therefore, today people don't have this mentality. I make a family so that I should reach salvation, even if it means crucifixion and martyrdom. That's what I'm going to endure. That's why there is a pledge. You take a vow when you get married, the Christian way, and not only. Nobody believes in that anymore. Because as soon as it gets disagreeable and the other person turns terrible, you feel that you have the right to buck out. You have the right to step out. That right is the right of your ego. And that is why again and again I'm saying people seeing in the, in the tantric way, seeing that the rules of the society have gone over the top, I for one am never asking people to push them back into the box. Consult the laws of Manu. Be like in the time of King Arthur and his knights. Turn back to some decent society. The Ten Commandments and all that stuff. It would be nice. But it won't happen. Because the momentum is way too big in the other place. In the other direction. And only the Third World War can stop such a momentum. Only a catastrophe of planetary proportions can stop humanity from rolling that way. And that's why in Tantra, we prefer to do Jujutsu. Like if it goes that way, then okay, have it go that way. There are people who don't believe in a lifelong relationship because after four years, sex is going to the dogs and it's not so shining anymore. You know what? Then you can have multiple relationships. Then you can practice sex with continence. But you can stay happy and excited and like, let's find a way to do all this, but not like in sex and the city. Not in an ugly, materialistic, selfish way. In a spiritual way. So that you can let go, but at the same time you can cultivate some spirit. And that is why, remember this part of the thinking of Arjuna is not reflecting a tantric approach to the society and to spirituality. It's the old-fashioned way. So he says the women of the family become corrupt, which to be very in some translations, it simply means they will start having sex freely, which in the Indian society, even today, it's a big no. It's a big problem, like you are not supposed to. 
and then women becoming corrupted o varshneya this is the nickname krishna is given at least 10 15 different names during this text all the indian deities and spiritual persons have multiple names usually 108 or like Shiva, a thousand and eight. And that's why Krishna himself is called Govinda, Gopala, Varshneya, and many other things. And that's why sometimes it's also helping the poetic spirit of the text. So, and he says, and he just meditates with loud voice. He thinks with loud voice. And he says, we're going to destroy the family. By destroying the family, the Dharma goes. By the Dharma going, impiety comes. By this, the women will feel the tendency to feel free and to do whatever they want. By the women being corrupted over Arshneya, there arises intermingling of castes. That's another politically incorrect one. The castes in Sanskrit are called Varna, and Varna means colors, which means the white-skinned people are going to start having sex with the dark-skinned people. And that's a no-no in the Indian Vedic society. You don't do that. Um, as you know, the Hollywood movies are cheating you a lot in this way. As you know, even in the European society until some 60 years ago, that was a no-no. And that is why um, we are today programmed. It's like in George Orwell. In George Orwell's 1984, one of the dictums of the Big Brother controlled society was to control the present, you must be able to control the past. And that means you feed people with a very prefabricated and falsified version of the past. Today, people watching documentaries and especially Hollywood movies and all this stuff, they don't know how the society was a hundred years ago. And because of this, Many things are unknown and many things are taken for granted. This thing with the mingling of the races, it is an old thing. And again, it is very controversial and I don't need to insist on it. I just would like to make a parenthesis here to read for you a chapter from the Mahanirvana Tantra. Now we are talking about a tantric text, a text which is a thousand years, a thousand two hundred years old, much more recent, and which comes from the tantric environment. And in the Mahanirvana Tantra, Shakti inquires of Shiva what is the best spiritual practice to do in Kali Yuga and all that stuff. And she describes the predicament. And I just clipped a paragraph from her peroration as she asked the question. So Shakti, Shakti, says to Shiva, now it's Kali Yuga and people are really not spiritual. And here is a whole list of invectives which Shakti comes with to the address of Kali Yuga. And you'll recognize some of the same perennial things, although this is a tantric text, a completely different text from a different tradition and from a different century. And she says, now the sinful Kali age is upon them when Dharma is destroyed, religiousness. An age that was happening in India 12 centuries ago or 15 centuries ago when the religion was a hundred times stronger than today in the Western world. And yet the text says Dharma is gone. If they said that Dharma is gone 15 centuries ago in India, then what are we talking about today? So Mahanirvana says, an age full of evil customs and deceit. Man 
pursue evil ways. The Vedas have lost their power. The Smritis, these are some other texts, are forgotten. And many of the Puranas, that's another class of texts, which contain stories of the past and show the many ways which lead to liberation, will, O Lord, be destroyed. Man will become adverse from, the from religious rites, without restraint, maddened with pride, ever given over to sinful acts, lustful, gluttonous, cruel, heartless, harsh of speech, deceitful, short-lived, short-lived as compared to Satya Yuga, poverty-stricken, harassed by sickness and sorrow, ugly, feeble, low, stupid, mean and addicted to mean habits, companions of the base, thievish, calumnious, malicious, quarrelsome, depraved, cowards, and ever ailing, devoid of all sense of shame and sin and all fear and of fear to seduce the wives of others. Vipras, these are the Brahmins, the high caste, will live like the Shudras, like the low castes, like without purity, without the, that Brahminic purity. And whilst neglecting their own Sandhya, those are the caste obligations, will yet officiate at the sacrifices of the low, like they will formally still be recognized as Brahmins. They will be greedy. Now it speaks about the Brahmins who are supposed to keep the backbone of the society, the priests, you would say, in Europe, in the Western world. They will be greedy, given over to wicked and sinful acts, liars, insolent, ignorant, deceitful, mere hangers-on of others, and the sellers of their daughters, degrade, averse to all tapas and vrata. They will be heretics, impostors, and think themselves wise. They will be without faith or devotion, and will do japa and puja with no other end than to dupe the people. They will eat unclean food and follow evil customs. They will serve and eat the food of the Shudras and lust after low women and will be wicked and ready to barter for money even their own wives to the low. In short, the only sign that they are Brahmanas will be the thread they wear, which is a formality, an external. Observing no rule in eating or drinking or in other matters, scoffing at the Dharma scriptures, no thought of pious speech ever so much as entering their minds, they will be but bend upon the injury of the good. Therefore, that's the bitter image of Kali Yuga as formulated even 15 centuries ago. And um, so, the story with the intermingling of the castes, which for them meant a lot. Confusion of castes, continues Arjuna, leads to the hell, the slayers of the family. Like those who do that will have such a bad karma that they will go to hell. For their forefathers fall, deprived of the offerings of rice ball and water. <clears throat> the forefathers were given offerings. Like you see that it still happens in Thailand. When people are dead, there is an altar. And every day or every other day, the family comes with rice and water and incense and candles to the spirits of the forefathers, to the dead. Even if they died young, they still are included as forefathers as the ancestors. And that's the story which we explain much more in our workshops on the art of dying, 
that there exists an economy. If you don't feed the deceased, the deceased prey upon you and they will not have the energy, the offering to be held spiritually. And thus there is a chain when you destroy your ancestors by ignoring them, then that, bound, that backfires on you. And thus there will be no more religion, the rites will go, the ancestors will not be honored, and this means hell for those who live also. Deprived of the offerings of rice, ball, and water. Basic, very basic offerings. Alms, alms giving for the dead. By these evil deeds of the destroyers of the family, which cause confusion of castes, the eternal religious rights of the caste and the family are destroyed. We have heard, O Janardana, that's another name of Krishna, that inevitable is the dwelling for an unknown period in hell for those men in whose families the religious practices have been destroyed. Like it's pretty severe. It says if you are not supported in your death, if there are no religious rites, you would go to hell. Of course, people would say, wait a second, isn't it depending on the karma? Yes, it does depend on one's karma, but remember that other religions say the same, that if there is not a proper integration <clears throat> by divinely sanctioned rituals of blessing, hell may ensue in spite of your merits. Remember that the Christian theology says that Jesus himself, when he died on the cross, because he didn't rise his kundalini to Sahasrara trying to reach Samadhi in the moment of death or something. He went, he drifted down into the limbos to the hell. And Christian mystics who tried to dramatize this, they said even the hell got afraid, even the demons from hell got afraid because they said, what is this guy doing? Like they could see who this man was. And they said, it's all wrong, you know, this man cannot be here. And then as Jesus raised, as the angel came and the resurrection happened, the gates of hell were busted, like Jesus even broke down hell through his death, through his sacrifice. Like people deprived of certain blessings were going to hell. Even Jesus was going to hell. That's a very long story, which in our Art of Dying workshops, when we study the Devayana and the Pitriyana, the path of the sun and the path of the moon, there you understand more about these things, how it is possible. Until then, I just leave it as a, at a statement which is made. Arjuna simply says what he learned in the family, what he learned in the childhood. He simply makes the chain of events and says, when the rites are not practiced and the family is destroyed, people go to hell. Alas, therefore, he concludes, we are involved in a great sin in that we are prepared to kill our kinsmen through greed for the pleasures of a kingdom. Like he questions his motivation. He says, we just want to have a kingdom. If the sons of Dhritarashtra, these are the enemies, the bad guys, with weapons in hand should slay me in battle, unresisting and unarmed, that would be better for me. Like he says, I prefer to die. I prefer to let go. I'm right, but still I'm about to destroy the very backbone of the society. 
It's like I have to wipe clean the whole thing and that's inconceivable. He clings to the structure. The society in which he lives has a structure. And now he's about to go beyond that into the unknown. And then Sanjaya, the man who tells the story, if you remember, this is a story which is told by somebody to the blind king. And Sanjaya says, having thus spoken in the midst of the battlefield, remember they were just in the middle, like leader of the armies, right in front of the army, Arjuna, casting away his bow and arrow, he was a famous archer, this Arjuna, sat down on the seat of the chariot, because normally a the warrior would stand up for fighting. He sat down on the seat of the chariot with his mind overwhelmed with sorrow. That's the despondency of Arjuna, that he simply sees only evil in front of him. He can't do it. What is the good of this? He is right. He and his brothers are right. Krishna is with them. And yet it's it's really bad. And to him who was thus overcome with pity and who was despondent, with eyes full of tears, a warrior like Arjuna, in those ages it was like inconceivable, like he was broken down completely and agitated. You know, the warriors, the martial artists are supposed to be completely centered. Agitation means death, means losing. So, completely out of the warrior mode, Krishna, or Madhusudana, that's another name, spoke these words. And we'll catch a few of them before the break. The blessed Lord, Bhagwan Krishna, said, Whence is this perilous strait come upon thee, this dejection which is unworthy of thee, disgraceful, and which will close the gates of heaven upon thee, O Arjuna. He takes him pretty hard. Like he's not saying, oh, I feel for you. And these are warriors. These are warriors from the old days. They are not wearing kid gloves. He says, are you stupid? Like what's happening with you? This is going to close the gates of heaven upon thee. Like you are sending yourself to hell. This is completely unworthy. He starts hard on him, although they are friends. And he says, Yield not to impotence, O Arjuna, son of Prita. It does not benefit thee. Cast off this mean weakness of the heart. Stand up, O scorcher of foes. He uses a strong Manipura motivational language. He reminds him of his heroic nature. And he says it doesn't. First of all, it's not your nature. That's not the way you are. That's not the way I know you. What's this thing you are doing now? But it takes way more than this. It takes 18 chapters, 17 chapters to convince Arjuna. So it's the beginning of the work of conviction. And that's why Arjuna is still, that's way too little. So Arjuna said, how, O Madhusadana, Madhusudana, shall I fight in battle with arrows against Bhishma and Drona, who are fit to be worshipped, O destroyer of enemies? Bhishma is the grandfather of the family, and according to the Mahabharata, he is immortal. He can choose the moment of his death. 
He will never die if he doesn't want. So he is like a god. He is more than a human. Bhishma is something which comes from another yuga. He is a reminiscence of a very old age. He is one of the divine men of yore. And as such, he is venerated. Everybody knows about Bhishma. And he is on that side, paradoxically. And Drona, Drona is their guru. Drona is their martial arts teacher. Drona is their sensei, is their sifu. How can you fight against your sifu? of your a guru in martial arts against your sensei. Arjuna says, those are fit to be worshipped. Both Bhishma as the patriarch of the family and Drona as the guru of me, I can only worship them. I can't do this thing. So Arjuna brings very strong arguments. He says, this sounds impossible. It is not enough that Krishna just rebukes Arjuna. He has to give him some teaching. He has to convince him. He has to show him the truth. And that's where now the teaching starts. But we were in the argumentation of Arjuna, where Arjuna says, I'm, it's Bhishma and Drona who are worshipful, you know. And he says, it is surely better to live even on alms in this world, like to be a beggar. He says it's better to become a beggar than to slay these noble-minded masters. For though they are desirous of gain, having killed them, I should enjoy only blood-stained pleasures in this world. He's aware of what's coming. This is not a gut feeling. or He is very logical. We do not know which is better for us, that we should conquer them or that they should conquer us. The sons of Dhritarashtra stand face to face with us. If we killed them, we should not wish to live. My nature, smitten with the taint of weakness, confused in mind about Dharma, like what is my duty to God? I pray thee, tell me decisively what is good for me. I am your disciple. Teach me, for I have taken refuge in thee. This is the noble character of Arjuna. He doesn't say, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, just uh, leave me the fuck alone and all that what an uh, egoistic person would do. He still has a religious feeling. And he says, I am your disciple. Teach me. I have taken refuge in thee taken refuge, like you take refuge in the Buddha. It's like Buddhists, when they become Buddhists, you have to make, say, a formula of taking refuge in the Buddha, which means everything in the Indian society. Like, if I take refuge into it, he's the guru. I give you everything. I give you obedience, but you give me guidance. You guide me through this. So he acknowledges that here he can't see. Indeed, I do not see what could dispel the grief that dries up my senses, though I should obtain an unrivaled and prosperous kingdom on earth and even lordship of the gods. It is exactly the statement from one of the Gospels in the Bible which says what use is there to a man if he gains even the whole earth if in the process he loses his soul. 
Like he simply says, I don't need to win or to conquer anything. I'm about to lose my soul. And as such, he is not willing to make this step. And Sanjaya finalizing this second coming of Arjuna. He says, having spoken thus to Hrishikesha, that's Krishna, Arjuna, the conqueror of sleep, the destroyer of foes, said to Krishna, I will not fight, and became silent. So he simply broke down and he simply said, I cannot fight. He lost his salt right there in the middle between the two armies on the battlefield, he collapsed. To him who was despondent in the midst of the two armies, Sri Krishna, as if smiling, O Bharata, spoke these words. That's a very peculiar character of Krishna. Krishna is often described in Indian spirituality as having a mischievous smile on his lips. Like whenever he was confronted with demonic things, kind of he smiled, you know, like confronted with death, with whatever, Krishna smiled, but it was a sort of a wicked smile, a cheating smile, like exactly like somebody seeing the devil, and the devil comes and says, listen to me, obey me, and Krishna would start smiling, you know, like, all right, you know, like this is, he loves it, Krishna loves these kinds of things. He sees the world in such a different way from the normal mortal. And Krishna, this, this is when he is pushed to the edge and he loves the edge. He, is, he smiles because like people are so conditioned by their fears. People are so limited. And Krishna always loves to bust people's limitations and to bulldozer through their fears and through their ignorance. So he smiles. That's why... In Indian spiritual history, Krishna is considered to be a bit of a cruel guru, a tough guru. He is the kind of the guru who, when you are screwed up, starts smiling. Because it's like, you know, it's like you want to see that it can get worse? It can, you know, like it's exactly like Yoda in the Star Wars when Luke Skywalker tells him, I'm not afraid. And Yoda starts smiling and he said, you will be. You will be. No, that's Krishna. Krishna goes exactly in that state of mind. And that's why people were very afraid of Krishna because of this smiling in front of capital issues. Krishna was like, you couldn't push him. Like Krishna would never be afraid or confused or he would smile. The blessed Lord then said, Thou has grieved for those that should not be grieved for. Yet thou speakst words of wisdom. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. He starts hard again. He says, you are giving me this shit like you speak words of wisdom with a family and with the caste and with the dharma and with going to hell. You are quoting to me spirituality, but you are not wise. You are repeating like a parrot what you have learned. And he says, you cry for some that should not be cried for. A Christian mystic was tortured by the devil. 
Now, many of you who are more agnostic or Buddhistic in their views, you can say that there are no other demons than the ones which we have in our mind. Okay, in a psychoanalytic way, maybe that man was tortured by his own mind. What he called the devil was just a projection of his own blockages, of his own darkness in the mind. That doesn't make any difference. Both things read to the same end eventually. It's just a way of speaking, a manner of speaking. So a Christian mystic was tortured by the devil, like plagued, na 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 nagged by the devil. And then at some point he simply lost it and he hit the devil over the face. In his delirium, in his vision, he had the feeling that he was sitting there face to face with the devil and he slapped him over the face. And then he started repenting and he said, you see, I'm supposed to show compassion, I'm supposed to show love, I'm supposed to show equanimity, and as soon as I'm provoked to some level, I slap the devil, you know. I shouldn't have done that, even with the devil. And so he thought I was too much, like he was a little bit of tending to be new age-ish, no manipura, wussy a little bit, like, you know, you have to be nice all the time. And then there appeared to him an angel, he had not, I don't know if exactly then, I forgot if exactly then or later, there appears to him an angel in a vision and says, Macarius or whatever his name, hallowed are thy hands because with them you stroke the devil, you hit the devil. Like to hit the devil is good. That's exactly what is required. So it's like he told him, it's, you did the right thing, you are a wuss. Why are you afraid to do that? You should stand with manliness against that. And therefore, here Krishna says, why are you crying those which don't deserve to cry for? Like Krishna is very judgmental. He says, those guys are goners. And you'll see, he goes really hard on it. He says, those guys are dead. Why do you cry for them? You pretend you are so wise, but you don't understand a bit. And he continues. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. I remember I was in India and one of the Beatles died, whichever of them died in those days, not John Lennon, the other one. George Harrison. Yeah? And this guy was a Beatles fan. And then he goes and the news came while we and he says, oh, George has died, poor George. Then that reminded me immediately of the Bhagavad Gita. The wise is grieving neither for the living nor for the dead. People are dying of, lots of children are dying of hunger in Africa. Krishna says, I'm not grieving for them. Everything happens because it has a reason to happen. You have to be completely detached to have this, like Krishna says, you hear that children die of starvation. The wise do not cry. The wise do not grieve, neither for the living nor for... But there is so much injustice. But there is so much... The wise don't look at it that way. That's a very revolutionary, egocentric, maya-based, illusion-based, superficial way of looking upon reality. That's why Krishna smiles. He's not sadistic. He simply sees that people live a small life in a cup of coffee 
and they can't see the big picture. We die. Every time we die, everybody in this room will die. And your death might not be a pleasant one. I don't know if you have ever seen people dying. Some people take hours to die. They choke every 20 seconds. They can't draw breath. And it's an agonizing process to leave the body. For some, some people die in 30 seconds, swiftly like this. It's a matter of karma. So everybody will die. I cannot promise that if you will not do your spiritual practice and reach to a level, your death is going to be smooth. We all pray to God, God give me a decent spiritual death. That's one of the most important things in life, that the last moment of your life should be glorious, should be a good death. But we don't know. I wish that everybody in this hall tonight will reach that. It might not be so. The wise are not crying for that. That is not the point. That you die and you die in a good way and you die. There, is, there are much greater laws of this universe which are governing the life and death than that. And he says, Nor at any time indeed was I not, I Krishna, not, nor these rulers of men, nor verily shall we ever cease to be hereafter. He basically says, we exist forever. This life is not the beginning. He says, at any time before, I was not. Like you can say, now you are Krishna, before you were not. He says, it's not true. I come since eternity. And he says, nor verily shall we ever cease to be. Like, we shall never stop existing. He basically moves Arjuna discreetly to the spirit. He says, Arjuna, you look at the bodies. Like any attached, blind, materialistic person would do. Why do you cry for the bodies? Living, dead, this, that. That's a duality. He says, at the level of the spirit, I am eternal. So are Bhishma and Drona. Like he basically tells him, you can see it coming already. He tells them, if you kill them, you don't kill them. They will still exist. You just send them in the astral world or wherever they go. What's the big deal? From the standpoint of the spirit, makes no difference. It's a very, very radical point of view. Like, he's not mincing with small issues. He simply says, so what if you kill them? You kill them, you kill them. They are still spirit. It makes no difference for their spirit, which is very radical. Just as in this embody, in this body, the embodied soul passes into childhood, youth, and old age, so also does he pass into another body. The firm man does not grieve thereat. Like he says, we are born, we die. Why cry when people die? Why cry or rejoice when people are born? It's just natural. There is no life without death. There is no birth without death. Therefore, these are just laws of nature. The wise, the truly wise, does not bother. Somebody was born, somebody died. People celebrate. A child is born, let's throw a big party. Somebody dies, let's throw a sad party. Krishna says, I'm not pleased and I'm not saddened by any of this. I, it doesn't touch me because I see the spirit 
and for the spirit it's the same. Now in the life, now out of life, what's the big deal? So he says, the firm man does not grieve at that. The contacts of the senses with the objects, O son of Kunti, which cause heat and cold, pleasure and pain, have a beginning and an end. They are impermanent. Endure them bravely, O Arjuna. Now by comparison, he says, while the spirit is permanent, there is something which is impermanent and he calls it by a very yogic technology, which, uh, terminology which is taken from the Sankhya philosophy. He says the contacts of the senses, the five senses, the smell, the sight, the touch, those senses through which we know the world, the contacts of the senses are those which generate heat and cold, pleasure and pain. It's all in our five senses, like in the Matrix, the movie, what's the universe? The universe is the perception which we have of the universe through our five senses. And it could be duplicated by a computer, at least theoretically. So, and they have a beginning and an end, while the spirit, he said, has no beginning and no end. They are impermanent. Endure them bravely, O Arjuna. Like, he simply says, you are in a body, you are confronted with the five senses, this is samsara, this is Maya, endure it bravely. Like, don't care about things which are pleasant or unpleasant, this or that. In this philosophy, there exists a very deep layer of it which talks about equanimity, the equality of all things, which even the tantric tradition embraces, the samatha, the samaya, the ultimate equanimity. And at the same time, a little bit in the last sentence, the attitude of Krishna is still non-tantric. Like, how do you deal with this world of the senses? A tantric guru would have said, use them bravely, O Arjuna. Understand them, meditate on them, utilize them. The senses, which have a beginning and an end, the perception of the senses, can be used. You get a sensation, such as you listen to some beautiful music, and your kundalini is rising with great gusto. Or you stand on your head and the gravitation acts on your body reversely and all your body fluids flow towards the top of the head and thus you rise and sublime your energy. That's a tantric view. Krishna says, endure them bravely. It's a bit of a glitch here. The text is composed in a way in which while the philosophy is universal and tantric as well, nevertheless the method, the attitude, is a little bit ascetic. Like we are in a world which is shitty, the senses are confusing you because they have a beginning and an end, they give you heat and cold, pleasure and pain, so there is this dualism, this vikalpa of the dualistic world, endure them bravely. There is nothing else to do. Again, a tantric would have said, exploit them, use them, utilize them. That's the difference. And he continues, That firm man, whom surely these afflict not, O chief among men, he always gives him great epithets, he calls him O chief among men, because he is a great ruler, he is a great leader, to whom pleasure and pain are the same, is fit for attaining 
immortality. I will give you an alternative reading because that's one of the sutra, one of the shlokas, which is very quoted in Bhagavad Gita. It's about... And he says, that man, the other reading, there are different translations, many, many translations of this text, and I'm giving you two alternatives. So the first one was, that firm man, whom surely these afflict not, O chief among men, to whom pleasure and pain are the same, is fit for attaining immortality. And he says, uh, the other reading is, that man indeed, whom these contacts of the senses do not disturb, who is even-minded in pleasure and pain, steadfast, he is fit for immortality, O best of men. It's just different English, but the point is here, this is a shloka which many gurus quote, many quote, and they say, what does it take to reach immortality? You have to be even-minded, equal to pleasure and pain, not disturbed by the contacts of senses, that is it. This is one of the yoga definitions of the state of pratyahara. Pratyahara is to insulate from the external thing. Then if you are, if outside it's too cold or too hot or you are sitting in a slightly uncomfortable position or this or that, should be equal to you. As I often tell to people, that's always a very, very major statement and not many people can say that for them pleasure and pain are the same. Ramakrishna could, when he suffered from cancer in his throat, could go in a state of samadhi where he didn't feel the pain. And he said, don't worry about me. When you are in samadhi, there is only bliss. Only the body is suffering. Not everybody can do that. And that's why... This is a big issue. And let us continue. He says, the unreal has no being. The real never ceases to be. The final truth about them both has thus been perceived by the seers of ultimate reality. <coughs> this is a wonderful sentence because basically it speaks about Purusha and Prakriti. The unreal can be interpreted as one of the layers of the meaning, can be interpreted as the void. The great emptiness is unreal and the unreal has no being. It's also a philosophical concept about being and not being, but it's about the void and the full. So he says the void has no physical existence. The real is always there. Like nature cannot disappear. Prakriti is eternal, eternally existent. And that is why he says the final truth about them both, and that's very, very significant, about them both, which is Shiva and Shakti. As I told you from the beginning, Krishna often touches metaphysics, which is of the highest order and which is tantric. And thus Krishna says, the, un, the final truth about them both, not about one of them, reach the Purusha, about both of them, has thus been perceived by the seers of ultimate reality. 
know that to be indeed indestructible by which all this is pervaded none can work the destruction of this immutable being he simply talks to him about atman about brahman about god and he says know that to be indeed indestructible by which all this is pervaded everything is pervaded by spirit and theoretically we know it and he says none can work the destruction of this immutable being basically what he wants to tell him is you cannot and you will not kill the atman of bishma and drona because that's imperishable it's beyond you and thus he says you are just going to destroy their bodies which is a completely different story and he says these bodies are known to have an end the dweller in the body is eternal imperishable infinite therefore o bharata fight he simply says i see atman atman is not killed the body is killed so what's the big deal as you can see that's very amoral it transcends the common morality krishna pushes things to a place where he is enlightened for him life and death make no difference neither do pleasure and pain neither do whatever hot and cold and he basically he says it won't make any difference it's only your blindness but wait a second arjuna says as you will see i'm not there you know it's like what are you talking about he who understands him to be the slayer and he who takes him to be the slain both fail to perceive the truth he neither slays nor is slain that's so difficult to swallow it's so radical it's like pushes the spirit he says if you see that somebody kills and somebody is killed that's not correct again here is the of course the thing who would have the clear conscience to go into this because this opens the door to hell the road to hell is paved with good intentions everybody can argue oh krishna said so and my god how many people did and they have ended in hell because they did not believe in it just to have an intellectual belief that oh uh, you know i am immune to this and yes as krishna said the soul never dies and look at the soul and don't care about the body it's just lying to yourself krishna speaks as a person who is in samadhi krishna is not in an ordinary krishna is in bhava samadhi krishna is an avatara krishna is in samadhi as he speaks he is there all the time he sees that that's why he means it but of course he will have to teach ways to evolve to that level because he cannot say trust me that's how it is i can see it it doesn't work that way he is never born nor does he ever die nor once having been does he cease to be unborn eternal everlasting ancient he is not slain 
when the body is slain. This he is of course the spirit, the soul, Atman. And this is one of the very beautiful shlokas again. Many yogis have repeated this in their meditation. And let's have it in a separate reading because all these significant ones I wanted to bring them in two alternative readings. He is not born nor does he ever die. After having been, he again ceases not to be. Unborn, eternal, changeless and ancient, he is not killed when the body is killed. Some yogis would repeat this shloka like a mantra. Like this is a great meditation. Unborn, eternal, changeless and ancient, he is not killed when the body is killed. Gives you goosebumps. This is a meditation. So here Krishna gives incredible wisdom. This Krishna gives this. This is the great wisdom which later was taken by the Upanishads and by the Vedanta. It is Krishna who first puts it clearly in Indian spirituality. One who knows him, the Atman, to be indestructible, everlasting, unborn, undying. How can that man, O Parta, slay or cause anyone to slay? It's like, it's an illusion, isn't it? He raises him at the level above the illusion. He says, from the standpoint of Atman, everything is immutable, everything is the same. This is indestructible, unborn, has no birth. And you cannot say, my Atman was born, my Atman dies. Atman is not born and it doesn't die. So he says, where is the problem? You see it as a problem because you live under this hypnosis. You live under this magic. And sentence used by the proponents of reincarnation. It's a famous shloka used in India and worldwide. As a man casting off worn out garments takes other new ones, so the dweller in the body casting off worn out bodies takes others that are new. That is why in the Oriental philosophy, death is not looked upon so bitterly. You just cast off your clothes and, you know, I remember reading a novel of Japan and some guy had to be killed or, and somebody says, send him in his next life. Like, what's the big deal? You kill him, he will come back in another life. What's the big deal? You know, it's like, it loses importance. Death and birth lose importance. They become much less significant. Like, what's the big deal that somebody died? They have been born 5,000 times. It's even boring to see them coming and going all the time. You know, it's like, what's the big deal? It's a very different mentality. While in the Western culture, because there is one life and one death, it's like it's very significant. Oh my God, if you died, that's it. Then the judgment day comes and that's it. This hypothesis of reincarnation makes things much lighter. Like it's exactly like changing clothes. You cast off your worn-off clothes and then you'll don some new ones. That's all there is to it. Weapons, and this is the paragraph which I quote for you in the Karma Yoga lecture in the first level of yoga. He says, weapons cannot cleave him, nor fire burn him. Water cannot wet him, 
nor wind dry him away. He is uncleavable. He cannot be burned. He cannot be wetted, nor yet can he be dried. He is eternal, all-pervading, stable, immovable, ever the same. He is declared to be unmanifest, unthinkable, unchangeable. Therefore, knowing him as such, you should not grieve. I hope you realize this is what could be termed as superhuman wisdom. If any one of you can feel and live and live, I'm sorry, like this, you are not a mortal anymore. This is a wisdom which marks the end of childhood. You are not a human being anymore. You have grown to a wisdom which is above that. So this is the beautiful paragraph which I will repeat in the reading of Shivananda. Weapons cut it not, fire burns it not, water wets it not, wind dries it not. This self cannot be cut, burned, wetted, nor dried up. It is eternal, all-pervading, stable, ancient, and immovable. This self is said to be unmanifested, unthinkable, and unchangeable. Therefore, knowing this as to be such, thou should not grieve. This is again rising at a level where the world and its problems become hilarious. And when you reach that level, that's why, again, spirituality has declined and not so many people reach at that level. How many people like Krishna have you heard about in the last hundred years? Those people live at a different level. I remember once I read a poem about the mother of a hero and the hero comes dead from the battle and it's her only son and the mother losing her grown-up son is like a great, one of the great pains of existence and of course she goes in a state of shock. Almost every mother losing a son at a grown-up age when kind of all her purposes were focused on it, she feels a terrible emptiness, a terrible loss. And from that shock, in the days until the funeral, a couple of days are passing and she's grieving and she's like out of her mind completely. And going like this, she goes into a paradoxical state of mind. And the poet who composed that poem says, you should not research these laws because when you understand them, you are crazy. Like for the human mind, the wisdom which you have when you look at death and life, at Atman, for the average people is crazy. Like for example, this mother, if she reached wisdom, she would walk at the funeral of her own son and she would laugh and celebrate. And everybody looking around would say, poor woman, she's gone nuts because her son died, she lost her mind because of the grief but actually she could be wise she could have reached to the point where she understood Krishna but everybody else would say she lost it wisdom for the attachment of this world when seen from the standpoint of the attachment of this world wisdom sounds like madness sometimes and that's why Krishna 
is mad, full on. Like he simply says, why do you care? I don't care. Even if you think of him as constantly taking birth and constantly dying, even then, O oh mighty armed, you should not grieve like this. Like he says, it's all very relative. It depends how you look upon things. Certain indeed, says Krishna, certain indeed is death for the born. You are born, you can swear you are going to die. So why grieve? Like it's certain. Everybody in this room is going to die. Certain, says Krishna, is death for the born. And certain is birth for the dead. Because as long as they are not liberated, they will be forced by samsara, they will be forced by the karma to be reborn again and again and again and again in a circle without end. Therefore, over the inevitable, you should not grieve. Like he says, why do you cry over that Bhishma and Drona are going to die? They are going to die anyway. What's the big deal? Creatures are un unmanifest in the beginning, manifest in the middle state, and unmanifest again at the end, O Bharata. What grief is there in this? Like he says, we come from the world of the spirit, then we are manifest. It can be read on different levels. It can be say, we are out of this body in the astral world. Then we are manifested in a physical world. Then we go back to the other world. What's the big deal? Or you can look upon it by zooming back the camera and looking at the bigger picture. In the beginning, Atman is in a pure state. Then it goes in transmigration and it goes in samsara. And it's manifest either in the astral world or the physical world. And then at some point it reaches nirvana and it is enlightened again. So he says, why grieve over this? And of course, he is right, but he is so tough. He is right. Nobody can deny that Krishna is right. But most people, when they hear such words of Krishna, they start whining. They start squealing. You know, it's like, how can I think like this? I'm not strong enough to think like this. That's not true. Krishna thinks you are strong enough to understand this. He explains it to a human being, Arjuna. What Arjuna understands, you can also understand. Therefore, Krishna says, stand up, be wise, don't whine for small things. One sees him as a wonder, another likewise speaks of him as a wonder, and as a wonder another hears of him. Yet, even on seeing, speaking and hearing, some do not understand him. By which Krishna says, it's not enough to know intellectually what I say, if you don't understand, by which he means to feel it, to be it, to experience it. He says, many people say, oh, I have in me a spirit which is immortal. Right. Good. And then you still live a small life and you still bother about small issues. That is lip service, like you talk about it, but you are not into it. He who dwells in the body of everyone 
is eternal and invulnerable, O Bharata. Therefore, you should not grieve for any creature whatsoever. Like he says, you are bothering with the flesh. You are bothering with the dust, with the clay. But the clay is in perpetual transformation. There is a spirit that enlivens this clay, this dust. That spirit is imperishable and invulnerable. Why don't you look at the spirit which exists forever? And you cry for the changes in the dust, for the changes in the matter. But can anybody stop the changes in the matter? One of the Greek philosophers said, we live in a world of change, change, change. Like everything is changing. There's nothing which will stay the same. No body, no life, no existence. So why grieve over that? He tries to give to Arjuna a remarkable understanding, which is very abrupt. It's a sort of Atma Yoga. What Krishna does here, it's an Atma Yoga. It's a meditation on Atman. And you can take this chapter. It's directly the second chapter, the first chapter in which Krishna teaches. And this is Atma Yoga. Even if you consider your own Dharma, now he takes him in another way. Even if you consider your own Dharma, the Dharma means your duty, your religious duty, your Kshatriya. You should not waver, for there is nothing better for a Kshatriya than a battle in accord with Dharma. This is way before the Muhammad, the prophet, where Krishna talks about a holy war. He says, that's what Kshatriyas are for. Kshatriyas are the warriors. Why is there need for a warrior class? That's exactly the reason for which you need police. Because if you don't have police in a city, there will always be a schizophrenic, there will always be a madman, there will always be somebody profoundly disturbed who will start entering into people's houses and stealing, raping, killing. So you need to have a sort of order in the society. There has been no society without order. Even in Shambhala, they have the Knights of Shambhala. It's impossible to figure out a society in which there is no some order-maintaining force, even if that order-maintaining force is very wise, very sattvic, very spiritual, but still it has to be there. And therefore, the Kshatriyas, like the Samurai and like the Knights, are exactly the people who are born for that. That's their Dharma. That's their test in this life. In this life, you will be incarnated in a body where you will be entrusted with this kind of life, this kind of mission. And he says, since you are entrusted with this, like why does a policeman complain that he has to catch a thief? Catching a thief is exactly why the policeman is a policeman. He has been made for this. That's his dharma. That's his reason of existing. That's why the society has created policemen. Because they are thieves and they need to be caught or stopped. And therefore, he says, for a kshatriya, a battle in which you save the righteous, there's nothing better than it. It's exactly like the knights in the old days when they were protecting the pilgrims. 
when the knightly orders appear, their original meaning was to protect the pilgrims, to make sure that no violence or injustice was done to the orphans, to the elderly, to the weak, and especially to the ladies. And if a knight would patrol on the road and see some ruffian who is about to try to rape a woman, and he steps in and stops it, and even bumps the guy hard in the process, isn't that his meaning? Isn't that he, why he is hired to be a knight? Isn't that why he is born to be a knight? Like, why be sorry that you are doing the job for which you are born? So Krishna tells him, Arjuna, you are born as a Kshatriya. And in those days, they believed that if you are born as a Kshatriya, God has sent you to be a Kshatriya. Like, it's the right thing. It's not a mistake or a coincidence. People had this belief. And Krishna tells him, there is nothing better for a Kshatriya than a battle in accord with Dharma because that's exactly your reason of existing in this world, of being who you are. Happy, says Krishna, happy are the Kshatriyas, O Partha, who find unsought, unsought, very important, such a battle, an open door to heaven. First, the word unsought. Like you find such a thing, but you didn't seek it for. You see, Arjuna, he doesn't want it. He says, I don't want to be this. I would rather be killed. Let them kill me. Nobody will win anything. I don't want to do this. And Krishna says, come to your senses. You are the good guy. Those are the thieves. You have to stop them. You are like a policeman who says, I cannot catch the thief. Let him knife me. Are you nuts? Come to your senses. This is your job. This is your duty. Do your duty. And he says, if you, they're happy are the Kshatriyas who find unsought such a battle, an open door to heaven. It is the belief of the Vedic society and of Krishna very much in this text that if you fulfill the goal of your life, you go to heaven. Either that means that you have a very good karma and you are going to a paradise or that it means that you can even reach spiritual emancipation. The meanings are different from commentator to commentator. But he basically says, if you are born as a Brahmin, live as a Brahmin. And if you manage to go through with it, that's a door to heaven. You will reach salvation. If you are a Kshatriya, live as a Kshatriya, and in the end, you will reach salvation. Which means, today, many of you will say, Swami, but what are we? We live in Kali Yuga, in the deep depth of Kali Yuga. There are no castes. You cannot define. That was a help, because people being born in a caste, they knew automatically what they were and what they were supposed to be. But today, some of you are asking me, Swami, am I a Brahmin? Am I a Kshatriya? Am I a Kshudra? What am I? You know, it's like, you don't know because the society has been messed up and nobody is nothing to start with. The confusion has been deepened a lot. And people like you who do yoga, first of all, they have to spend the time meditating, trying to find out who am I? What am I made for? What's my meaning in this life? What am I supposed to do with my life and with myself? Are are you supposed to be knights? 
Are you supposed to be monks? Are you supposed to be merchants or producers? What are you supposed to be? That is a very important question. And that's why he, basically Krishna says, if you would be able to understand what you are, if you fulfill it, you will die in such a karmic, positive way. And psychologically speaking, you would say, your mind would be so happy and so at peace when you will die, that you will die fulfilled. It's exactly like the person who lives a life and when he or she looks back, says, my God, what a life I had. Wonderful. I did everything. I am fulfilled. I die without any regret. And then when you have this kind of feeling, then when you die, your mind supports you. Because never forget, and those of you who did the art of dying know this, your mind is your own judge. You judge yourself when you die. Your subconscious mind is loaded with your samskaras and with all your things. And therefore, if you die happy, fulfilled, then you will go through the gates of death like this. You will cross the bardo singing because you are fulfilled. That's why I sometimes go that people. The, fo the first thing is this politically incorrect from thing from Tantra. Are you living according to your sexual identity? You are man. When you will die, oh man, will you want to look back in your life and say, what a man have I been in this life? I'm fulfilled. I've been a man. Or are you going to say, I was born a man by mistake. All my life I didn't really do manly things. I never came to terms with my own manliness. If you are a woman, when you will die, you will want to look back and to say, what a woman I have been. I have developed my femininity. I am fulfilled in my femininity. If not, how can you reach salvation? Because your own subconscious mind is dissatisfied with you. You die with the thought, I'm not fulfilled. There were lots of good things in my life, but I, I was not really happy. That's a killer. If you die with that mind, you will never go through the narrow straits of the bardo, as the Tibetans put it. You will get choked, you will get caught in one of them. Because the mind, as you start unrolling the mind, un spoiling the mind, then the mind will get to some point where you will be caught. It's like you meditate and meditate and as you die and go through the days of the bardo, you go at a deeper and deeper and deeper level and ah, there you hit a knot. And that knot won't unravel anymore. You can't go further. You are stuck. There is no salvation. There is just some astral universe and you'll have to come back to earth to try once more. It is imperiously necessary that a person that is in search for spiritual realization should die fulfilled. If you don't die fulfilled, and the first fulfillment is the fulfillment of your gender, you can transcend it. If you go into Vedantic approaches about your Atman, you can be no man, no woman, human being, Atman. It's up to you if you choose to do that. In Tantra, 
we have both ways. But of course, the dominant one is the one in which you play your role. So he says, if you do your dharma, that is an open door to heaven. You will die with the thought, I did my duty. I did my dharma. And that will give you a ticket, a free ticket to go through the bardo. Because you will have the firm belief that you have acquitted yourself of your duty, of your dharma. Now, he says, if you do not engage in this battle, which is in accord with dharma, of course, that's the part of the sentence which is contestable. Like, who the heck is Krishna to decide that this battle is in accord with dharma? Of course, you don't know the whole story from Mahabharata because it's quite common sense. Like it's very well clear common sense that the Pandavas are right and uh, Yudhishthira and the others are deeply dark and deeply bad. But still, that statement will be approached later. Don't think that Arjuna is stupid and will let it pass. He will challenge Krishna even on this one. But for the time being, Krishna, he knows, or at least he pretends to know, of course, because he is an avatar, he is considered as knowing, and he comes on strong. And he says, now, if you do not engage in this battle, which is in accord with dharma, then casting away your own dharma and good fame, you will incur sin. He says, paradoxically, you are the policeman and you are supposed to catch the thief. And you won't do it. That's a sin. For a merchant, it's not a sin that he doesn't run after a thief. For a Brahmin, it's not a sin that he doesn't run after a thief. Because that's not their dharma. That's not what their meaning in life is. But you, Arjuna, you are a Kshatriya. And you are supposed to help maintain the society clean by the force of arms. You are the policeman of this society. And if you don't do it, for you this will be sin. So he tells him it's quite the other way around. Not only that you are not going to do a sin, but if you don't do it, then it's going to be a sin. Because you deny the very dharma for which you are born. Moreover, man will ever tell of your disgrace. And to a man of honor, ill fame is worse than death. Here, of course, Krishna manipulates him because Arjuna is a Manipura person and like because he's a warrior and because he's like a samurai. Krishna tells him, ill fame for a man of honor, ill fame is worse than death. That's universally there on Manipura. So, therefore, he manipulates him. Like you could say that Krishna would say, you know what? I don't give a damn of what people think about me. I'm not going to kill my guru and this just because people will think bad of me. People can kiss my ass. I don't care. So, of course, here Arjuna is not at such an elasticity of consciousness to be able to go in Vishuddha, to go in Sahasrara, to go in Anahata and to say, you know what, I can see this universe from so many points of view that I simply don't care. Some of you can do that in yoga. But Arjuna is mainly a warrior. He is a sort of Manipura Sahasrara. Manipura Ajna Sahasrara. Something like this. He is like a samurai. 
He's like a Zen warrior. His just thing is karma yoga, do the will of God, surrender, and get enlightened. His path is not the path of bhakti yoga. His path is not the path of jnana yoga. His path is the path of karma yoga, obviously. The great warriors will think you fled from battle out of fear, and they who held you in esteem will belittle you. Again, here he plays with his ego, which shows how tricky Krishna can be. He would use any argument, even stupid arguments, even wrong arguments, just to get Krishna where, just to get Arjuna where he has to go. Like some people say, so what if they will belittle me? Okay, I'll just make humility. Yeah, but Arjuna is not a Christian monk in a, in a monastery to practice humbleness. Humbleness is for those who practice the path of the heart. Krishna, I'm sorry, Arjuna is not on the path of the heart. So for him it means something. You always may think, oh, he could just accept with humility that people would think bad of him. Not if he is a Kshatriya. If he is a proud Kshatriya, he has a different path there. Your enemies will speak many ill words of you and will deride your strength. What greater pain than this? For a samurai, indeed, what greater pain than this? Slain, you will reach heaven. Victorious, you will enjoy the earth. Therefore, O son of Kunti, stand up resolved to fight. There is absolutely no doubt that Krishna tells him, go to, go to holy war. Again and again, this is so tough that some people, even in modern yoga, they, they prefer to consider it an allegory. Stand up and fight with yourself. It's like even in Islam, probably influenced by this, the famous concept of jihad is double. There is the small jihad which fighting in the society for Allah, for the religious things, and there is the greater jihad, which is fighting inside yourself with your sins, with your vices, with your ignorance, with your demonic tendencies. Therefore, he, the, either you take Bhagavad Gita as an external or internal thing, the meanings still symbolically are there. Having gained, and here is, he tells him of detachment, says, having gained equanimity, in pleasure and pain, in gain and loss, in victory and defeat, then come out to fight. Thus, you will not incur sin. So he tells, if you reach a state where pleasure and pain, gain or loss, victory or defeat are equal to you, then you can fight and you will not incur sin. Which means, even if you kill all this battlefield of people, there will be no karma. You are just doing your duty, your kshatriya duty, and you do it with equanimity. Don't do it with hate. Don't do it with anger. Don't do it with expectation. Don't do it with ulterior motives. Do it in a state of equanimity. That's acting with detachment. And he says, this which has been set before you until now is understanding in terms of Sankhya. He calls the philosophical part, the more jnana yoga part, Sankhya, Sankhya, which is a great philosophical system, 
which, great, which gave the words, Purusha, Prakriti, the elements, the, all the tattvas and all these, they all come from Sankhya. Sankhya is an intellectual speculative philosophy from which Patanjali and all the yogis of that time, they took their terminology. So Sankhya was a sort of a metaphysical yoga, intellectual yoga, a sort of a jnana yoga. So he says, that which has been set before you is understanding in terms of Sankhya. Hear it now in terms of yoga. He de de separates Sankhya from yoga. For him, yoga means actually mostly karma yoga. It's a funny thing, like he says, jnana yoga versus karma yoga. So he says, I told you the things according to Sankhya. That's the incredible meditation on Atman. Atman is immortal. Why are you blinded by appearances? And he says, now I'm going to give you a, another run, but from another standpoint. And this is when he will actually start defining the yoga of action at some point, the karma yoga. He says, your, is, your intellect established through it, O Partha, you will cast away the binding influence of action. Binding influence of action, karma. If your mind will understand it, you are going to eliminate karma. There will be no karma. So, in this way, now Krishna will start talking from the standpoint of yoga. This, we are going to stop here and start it in our next lecture. Krishna has already presented a beautiful, beautiful thing. Try to remember it. These meditations on the nature of the Supreme Self and this form of ultra-detachment, which can again, to some of you, seem superhuman, cold, extreme. This is the way Krishna has presented the truth about Atman in the language of the Sankhya philosophy, in a very Jnana Yoga-like, in Vishuddha, Ajna, Sahasrara, with full detachment from the contextual reality in which we are being caught in our daily lives. With this, we'll stop here. Let us remain in silence for a couple of minutes, interiorizing and meditating, so that we can absorb in peace the meanings of the formidable radical message of Krishna. And with that, we will conclude. A couple of minutes of meditation, interiorization, meditate on who am I, meditate on the fundamental issue of what is Atman.
And that will do. With this we have finished. Namaste to all of you. We'll continue in one week.